0: Hello, friends. This is head of school, Ken Aldridge. And in this episode of the Quaker Matters podcast, we get to hear from Adam Alec, class of 95, who currently serves as the director and executive producer of Opinion Video at the New York Times. Throughout this podcast, you'll get to hear Adam's perspectives on passion, enthusiasm, curiosity, equality, justice, the importance of critical thinking and healthy skepticism, An entrepreneurial spirit, a willingness to try on different roles, especially at the New York Times, Adam's perspective on global perspectives and why they matter to us in our overall understanding of the world and our understanding of what is most proximal to each of us. We get to hear an engaging story about Adam's time at Friends and what he's done in his career. Enjoy and i think this this value of critical thinking and healthy skepticism was sort of baked into a lot of our classes to question things in a really delightful and curious and fun way and i think that's also like a commandment or a tenet of being a journalist it's kind of what we do every day so i think those things are things that keep me tethered or connected to my time at friends <laughs>
1: And welcome to another episode of the Quaker Matters podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Adam Ellick, Wilmington Friends School class of 1995, and the director and executive producer of Opinion Video at the New York Times. Adam, how are you?
0: Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on.
1: I'm doing really well and really excited to learn more about you and all the incredible work that you've been doing for quite some time over there at the New York Times. But before we dive into your career, I do want to highlight and talk a little bit about your time at Wilmington Friends School. So to start, would you be able to tell the audience when you were first introduced to Wilmington Friends School?
0: Sure. I spent 14 years at Friends. I um, enrolled in pre-K, I suppose, um, and that lasted until I graduated in 12th grade.
1: In doing my prep for this interview, I read a story in the Whittier from nine years ago, and you stated in that interview, you blamed the Whittier for your career in journalism directly as you got the, to use your quotes, disease infection of journalism that really never stopped. Why is that? Or better yet, how did that happen?
0: Yeah, there's actually a quite profound moment or turning point um, that occurred um, in the meeting room in ninth grade. There was a advisor to the Whittier named Terry McGuire. And there were he had a little problem on his hands, which is he had too many staffers and not enough stories. It's a problem that I wish I had today in my in my job. And um, he held a press conference and he challenged all of these excess student staffers to write a story about the press conference. And he vowed to publish the story that he thought was the best one. And um, I was one of those staffers and I definitely wasn't the smartest kid in the room because I think the majority of other staffers were in advanced classes and I definitely was not in in any advanced classes. and I attended the press conference, and I took notes, and I remember going home and writing the story with a level of passion and enthusiasm that I had never experienced in any of my academic classes. And I remember having asking my father over several rounds that night to edit and take a peek at what I had written, and I remember polishing it the next day before school the next morning. And I submitted it, and he selected it, and it ran And it was kind of the first time that I ever remembered being really good at something and being confident at something. And normally, I think I handed in papers with anxieties or insecurities or just knowing they were flawed or worrying about what wasn't right. And I handed this thing in with a sense of pride that just felt really good. And after that, I realized that this endeavor of writing for a paper was not fueled by obligation or assignment, but by passion. And that never really left.
1: Everyone has like that one teacher coach that has impacted them in so many different ways. Was, was Terry that teacher for you? I
0: think there were a handful of teachers and friends that like played a role in, um, in inspiring me to be a better version of myself. And I think uh, he was definitely one of them. And I think he ended up mentoring me and guiding me through various roles at the paper, whether it was photography or writing a column or writing news stories. And I spent a lot of time with him looking at photos and editing copy. Um, And I, I, I just have memories of it being challenging and also fun, which is just a big part of this stuff is actually enjoying what you do. So he played a big role, and there were also a few other teachers who I have really specific memories of them um, mentoring me and and inspiring me, and just have a lot of wonderful memories of of their their guidance and mentorship over the years in what ways might you still feel connected
1: to friends many years later
0: well i don't live in um in Delaware or in the region, so i don't really have a um a physical Connection to the place these days, but I think it's probably quite apparent that I I, I carry a lot of the things that I learned um, during those 14 years with me today, and, and most prominently in my career, I think there are a lot of values that I learned at my time at Friends. Some that come to mind are equality and justice which I think were driven into us both through the vessel of Quakerism and also through academic rigor. And the other thing that I think I, I really took with me and never let go was the value of critical thinking and healthy skepticism. I, I remember our school being a place that was void of flags and anthems and crosses and any symbols. And I remember learning that's because of the Quaker belief that you, when you revere something, whether it's a symbol or an anthem or a photo, that you lose your ability to, to criticize it and to question it. And I think this, this value of critical thinking and healthy skepticism was sort of baked into a lot of our classes to question things in a really delightful and curious and fun way. And I think that's also like a commandment or a tenet of being a journalist. It's kind of what we do every day. So I think those things are things that keep me tethered or connected to my time at Friends.
1: Your experience at the Whittier, finding stories, writing stories, doing all that goes into the work of a journalist. When you decide to go to Ithaca, was that purposeful to continue to try and develop as a journalist?
0: Yeah, I chose Ithaca College because it had a a journalism school that had a good reputation and professors who I admired and had vetted. And it was sort of designed for people like me, or it felt like it was. And I was quite interested upon graduation to push forward these skills in a more professional way um, and try to take it from a hobby to, to a life. So it was a very deliberate choice. It wasn't just a major, but it was kind of like an infection or a disease. It was this like incurable passion that I, I couldn't shed. And I I was quite obsessed with becoming a journalist for many reasons. I mean, one of which is just because it's really fun to be an eyewitness to to the world. And also because I think it has some value in the sense of holding power to account and accountability. So it was, there were many things that drove me uh, into journalism, but I think like my time at Friends was sort of a time when the seeds were planted and the passion was ignited.
1: Upon graduating college, you work at the Indie Star, the Prague Post, you are a Fulbright Scholar in Indonesia, you also serve as a visiting professor at the Russian American Journalism Institute. I guess I'm just curious as to how these experiences and you know it's a wide variety, but how these experiences help to prepare you for taking the next step in your journalism career and working for the New York Times?
0: When I graduated college, I took a job at the Indianapolis Star, and I was at the state desk roaming around Indiana, reporting on a whole bunch of issues in rural Indiana and smaller cities. And it was really interesting. And I learned a lot. I had never spent significant time in the Midwest. And in some ways, it felt like my first foreign correspondence assignment, because I was definitely a foreigner in Indiana. But, you know, I also kind of had an itch to see more of the world and to just try to learn and use journalism as an excuse to see and discover and learn about new things. So I had a few opportunities for various jobs in mid-sized American cities, but nothing excited me more than this idea of going to a new place where they speak a different language, not knowing my way around the streets, where people look and dress differently. And try to learn about how and why that place does what it does and its history and its politics and its culture and its traditions. So I took a job in Prague and I thought it would probably be a six month or a one year stint. And I think I stayed abroad for six or seven years after that, um, eventually moving towards Russia and former Soviet countries and then to Indonesia and I think a lot of it was just driven by sort of curiosity which I think is like one of the most core ingredients for a journalist for many the new york times it would be considered
1: or is considered the pinnacle of journalism so when when you get the call and are hired by the new york times is that a moment that is, you know, take a deep breath. I made it. I would equate it just as a person that loves sports. Is this like a quarterback winning a Super Bowl? Like I, it feels like the ultimate accomplishment. And I'm just curious as to maybe how it all happened for you and what that moment was like.
0: Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but uh, that moment is definitely not as cinematic as you're making it out to be. I wish it was, but it's, it's hardly as uh, as wonderful as it sounds. On paper. Um, So the truth is, I was living in Indonesia and I had discovered this amazing, tantalizing story that I was convinced would be the greatest documentary ever made. But I didn't really know how to make a documentary. I didn't know how documentaries are funded. I didn't know the nuances of production. So I started watching documentaries and I watched like a whole bunch of documentaries. And whenever I watched one that I thought was good or inspiring, I emailed the director and I was like, I loved your documentary, Can We Have Coffee? And I met about 30 documentarians during a trip home to New York. And I asked them all a million questions about how this industry works. And I thought I could do like a three or six month apprenticeship with one of them in order just to gain just enough knowledge to go back to Indonesia and make this film. And one of them was starting the video unit at the New York Times. And he was a very esteemed documentarian and journalist. And he said, can you shoot and edit film? And I said, no. And he said, well, unfortunately I don't have a job for you. And then some weeks later he called me back and he said, listen, I have a position that is well beneath you. It's basically being in charge of our equipment, but you seem like a smart and curious and courageous person. So I thought I would offer it to you and if you don't get too bored maybe you'll learn a lot on the sidelines of the journalism and I told him okay I'll I'm going to join but just for 3 months as long as it's temporary and as long as you won't be upset if I leave after 3 months cuz I've got to get back to Indonesia to make this film and that was 16 years ago
1: I don't know I don't know if there's a question here but I mean I guess I'm curious just in how working for the Times, like how has that allowed you to see various parts of the world? And also just in doing a quick LinkedIn search, your roles have oftentimes changed. Um, So I'm I'm, I'm struggling to sort of find a question here other than just to speak on your various experiences at the time and sort of how that has shaped you into the journalist you currently are.
0: Well, the beauty of, Of my time at The Times is that I've had so many different roles and it feels like I've worked for different companies, even if it's the same company, because it's the kind of place where you can be really entrepreneurial and you can bounce around quite a lot. So I have written dining stories. I lived in Texas one summer and wrote stories for the National Desk. I lived in Geneva, Switzerland and covered human rights around the world. I lived in Afghanistan and Pakistan and covered the wars there. I did many trips to places in Africa and covered Arab Spring and covered disinformation in Russia. And now I'm a manager and I run a team that makes films and videos. So I feel like I've had a bunch of reincarnations at the times. And it sounds like a long tenure at one place, but it actually feels like I get a new job every couple years.
1: You have reported on many serious issues happening throughout the world. You were leading the Times coverage of the 2015 Paris attacks, reporting on Russian disinformation, Hugo Chavez's violent land reforms in Venezuela, discovering the story of Malala and the 50,000 schoolgirls that were going to lose their education because of the Taliban. I think the answer. May be obvious, but I would just love to get your perspective on it. Why is it so important, in your words, to share these foreign stories with Americans?
0: Well, I mean, I'm simply under the belief that like continued exposure of harm is a good thing and that knowledge is power. And I think that knowing things, even if they're tragic or difficult, or even like if they damage our own sense of pride, I think that still makes us better off as a society in the long run. So I think these kinds of stories, like, In addition to accountability, they also sort of hold up a mirror and allow us to reflect on our own lives, and they offer a relativity and a contextual relativity of our own systems and the way that we live. So even though things can feel really far away and feel incredibly unfamiliar, I think there's also a lot of humanity that translates across languages and borders.
1: In these stories, many of which are difficult subjects, topics. How do you ensure that you're handling each one with the appropriate amount of care and the appropriate amount of detail?
0: Well, listen, I mean, journalism is not a science, right? Like there's not a perfect recipe or a standard on how to practice everything in the scientific sense of the word. But fortunately, we do have uh a whole bunch of journalistic standards and principles and guidelines, even if they're imperfect and always evolving, but they're, they are rules. For example, some of them are that we don't engage in hate speech. We're not beholden to corporate interests. We fact check everything that we publish. So things get filtered for accuracy. So you do a lot of sort of basic core journalistic Practices. You have conversations with your sources about danger and risk. You disclose who you are. You never lie about your identity. You explain to people that this stuff is on the internet. And even if they're in an Afghan village, it can still be translated and be disseminated in their land and their language. You talk about things transparently. You give people information and as much information as possible. And you empower them to make decisions that are best for them. And then you figure out the story afterwards. So those are just a few of many, many standards and responsibilities that we adhere to and that I adhere to when I was in the field that try to keep things uh, responsible or ethical, safe, however you want to deem it.
1: Looking at journalism and the specific work that you have done, do you feel like it's your responsibility to give a voice to the voiceless?
0: Yeah, I think that's one way of putting it. I mean, I don't really wake up and think of it that way in the morning, but um, I think various stories have different missions. Um, sometimes it's just to advance the news and inform people. And sometimes other forms of journalism are, I think what you're calling like accountability journalism or a voice that's that's not heard very often. So I don't think every story fits that matrix, but it's certainly... it's. it's you know, it's a tool in our toolkit. It's a thing that we do, but it really depends on, there's so many different stories that I've been involved in. And I don't think that applies to like every story.
1: Is there a particular story that you are most proud of?
0: Well, that's a tough question. There are many that I would like to have another swing at. I'll tell you that. I, I made a film about four or five years ago about the history of Russian disinformation And I'm proud of it because I think it aged really well it was made at a time before disinformation was a massive horrifying national conversation I think we were ahead of the curve when we made that film, and it took a really complicated subject that went back 30 40 years to the Cold War. And it told it in a 45-minute film that's for ordinary people that we tried to make delightful to watch and not, not make it feel like homework. And as I said, that film is five years old and it's still kind of eerily relevant, I would say. And I love that film because it's kind of above the news. It's not a story about the news. It's, it makes you rethink how you read and how you watch and how you ingest information. So I think it has kind of like an evergreen value. I think as time goes on, that film feels, still feels fresh. And that's hard to say about a lot of work around current events. I'm also like really proud of a series we made a couple years ago called Equal Play. It's about women in sports. And the series went after Nike and a few other companies. And it exposed a series of abuses one of them was an abusive, very famous coach who had a system of abuse under him that targeted young female athletes. And our, company, our, and our series also took aim at how Nike failed to offer maternity leave to its uh, famous female athletes despite promoting them in all sorts of girl power advertisements. And the series led to a lot of change in the real world. It led to protests among uh, staffers at Nike It led to the coach being fired and banned from international organizations. And most of all, it led to Nike and four other apparel companies changing their policies and finally offering maternity leave to female athletes. So it's always very satisfying when you can make a piece of journalism and it actually results in positive change in the real world. It's hard to achieve that, and a lot of stories sadly fall silently down the internet, but this was um, this was an exception of something that we can point to something tangible and, and be proud of that.
1: For the stories that you missed and might want another swing at, is there a common denominator as to why you may have missed?
0: That's a good question. Uh, regret is a a powerful force. I don't know about a common thread, but I think that like it's too often the case that journalists, including myself, like work for us and not for our audience. So things can be longer because we think they're interesting, or things can be in a film because it was hard for us to get behind the scenes, like access or a special interview. And it's hard to to kill stuff, to kill scenes in an edit when you're really attached to them as opposed to just thinking what do people really need to know here and are you making this are you making this film or your story for yourself or are you making it for someone that is trying to feed their kids and hold down a job and watch their favorite series and go to a play and who has other interests and time constraints in their life and i think I just try really hard not to be self indulgent in my storytelling, but it's a challenge. It's something that I wrestle with. And there's a lot of stuff I watch and I'm just like, that I made years ago. And I'm like, I'm, you made that for yourself, Adam. Like that, that could have been half the speed, um, half the time, but you thought it was interesting because you spent two months reporting it out but no one actually needs to know all this stuff. So there's a discipline in editing, right? There's a discipline in writing. And I think it's really important to think about our audience and to obsess over them as opposed to just what we want to make. Like, this isn't film school.
1: How has the way in which society consumes media now, less reading, more watching short videos, how has that impacted the work of journalists?
0: So I think that there have been... I probably witnessed more journalistic reforms in the past three to four years than my first 10 or 11 years in the industry. I think we're, we're in an industry that's rapidly evolving. Um, I think our audience and technology is moving faster than we are as journalists and as makers of stories. So there are constantly new tools and new technologies which are very exciting and that requires us to to adapt quickly. I think the most profound change in recent years is the relationship between the journalists and our audience. Just a very quick and boring tangent about media history. Most journalism used to be funded on an ad-based model which is which means you, I mean, this was the case when I was growing up, right? Like, you write stories and other people at the company sell ads, and you're not directly relating to those subscribers. The ads pay for the journalism. So it was a very sustainable business model, but it was kind of like a triangle between journalism, ads, and readers. And now a lot of media companies, but of course not all, are a subscription model. This is a uh, massive and revolutionary reform. And this now means that we have customers, we have clients, they're called subscribers and we work for them. And we're able, I mean, we're the first generation of journalists that have the tools to measure how much they're watching, how much they're reading, time spent on page, shares, comments, all forms of engagement. I mean, journalists of previous generations couldn't even dream to have this relationship with their audience. So we're really lucky. And they hold us accountable as well. So it comes with increased responsibility. But this dynamic definitely changes our job. I mean, when we publish a film, we obsess over the comments. They make us better. They hold us accountable. Sometimes they lead to corrections. Sometimes we think about if people are debating the style of our film, that's a loss. If they're debating the subject and the substance in the film, then that's a win. And we, we want to hear from them and we answer them and we use their response for additional stories and follow-up stories. So it's a much more intimate and hands-on relationship with our audience, as opposed to yesteryear where you would publish a story in the news journal and not know who reads it and not know what anyone thinks and go into work the next day and be assigned another story. This is a two-way relationship now. And it doesn't mean that every comment dictates everything we do but these things like data and comments they inform our decisions and they're part of our conversation on what to do so i think we're really lucky but we also have a lot more responsibility
1: you've certainly been at the forefront of this change and your current job title at the times is the executive director at new york times for opinion video and op docs you invented opinion video in 2018 and these have been wildly successful winning an Academy Award and four Emmys. I'd like to ask you, in your own words, what is Opinion Video? And much along the lines of what we just talked about, why was it important to create this as we continue to consume media in various ways and on different platforms in 2023?
0: I was a foreign correspondent for many years, bouncing around the world and telling stories and all sorts of uh, interesting places and learned a lot. But Those kind of gigs are incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. And I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything, but they're also exhausting. You spend a lot of time on planes and you make a lot of sacrifices and it's just a very intense job. And I felt very fulfilled from that experience. And I also felt tired and I thought, I want to try something different. So I wrote a proposal to start a new department at The Times, and it's called Opinion Video. And basically, Opinion Video, my team is a small team of journalists, filmmakers, former YouTubers. It's quite a, a quirky mix of talent. And I started it in 2018. And what we do is we, we try to combine original reporting and old school journalism with really creative storytelling to make visually transformative commentary. What does that mean? It means we make documentaries. We made a feature documentary like the Russian disinformation film, Operation Infection that I spoke about. We make uh, shorter argued video essays and shorts. And we also have a series called OpDocs, which I oversee, which is a short documentary series on the internet that's made by outside filmmakers, both emerging and renowned filmmakers. And we shape them and sometimes commission them and acquire them and bring them to the world. So basically what we try to do is we believe that really good journalism doesn't need to feel like homework. It can actually be delightful to consume. It can even be funny to consume. Earlier, I mentioned a series about women in sports called Equal Play. It was an investigative series. We got three famous female Track stars to sign non disclosure agreements. But we didn't tell the story in a boring and orthodox way. I'm sure everyone can close their eyes and imagine what a uh, traditional TV broadcast story would look like on that subject. But we actually made a fake Nike commercial using Nike's rhetoric and visual motifs against them. And we dropped the piece on Mother's Day. And it has uh, shreds of humor and satire and irony in the piece but it's also got a lot of heavy hitting journalism in it. And this is one of the commandments that my team is sort of built on, which is can we take really good reporting and make it delightful to consume. And it tends to be a little bit more filmy and a little bit less newsy. We don't do breaking news. Um, We try to do big special projects about things that have high stakes and scale and accountability. And we were really excited that we won four Emmys in the past two years. And last year, we won the first Oscar that was ever awarded to The Times. So that was pretty cool. That's incredible. And
1: it's clear, right, that you have successfully brought original reporting with visual and opinion storytelling through opinion video. I want to know, why have you been so successful?
0: Well, I always found it to be very rewarding to work with people who are different from me. So I hired a whole bunch of people who have skills that I don't have. There are people on my team who are amazing cinematographers and animators and writers. And it's a small team, but we have um, kind of a really diverse skill set. And people have a lot of different backgrounds. I mean, there's someone on my team who was a war correspondent and a writer for more than 20 years. And there's someone else on my team that um, had his own YouTube channel and was making essays uh, in his home for years. So, uh, and we hire a lot of freelancers who aren't journalists at all. And it's really fun to work with people who are different from you and you learn so much. And I think this is reflective in our work because various people are inputting different skills and talents It's a little risky because people don't always agree. And when you have different backgrounds, you have different skills, you have different ways of making stuff. So sometimes we have too many cooks in the kitchen. But overall, I think it's it's not just a fun way of working, but it leads to better projects. And the thing that unites us all is that we wake up in the morning and we have meetings about our next projects. And those meetings are reflective in the mission of the times, which is are there stories out there we can do that we think can have impact in the real world and make the world a better place? And that might mean going after a vote or a corporation that's doing demonstrative harm, or it might mean just putting the spotlight on something that hasn't got enough attention. So we're all sort of united by that same quixotic or idealistic mission, which is to have impact in the real world
1: i want to ask you another sort of journalism at large question here and i want to go back to that whittier article you stated on journalists we're like the radars of awareness for what society needs to know with that in mind and sort of how we've changed in the in, in the 10 years since right because civilians can report on issues now with the simple click of a button on their phone do you feel as though your work now is even more important given the massive amount of misinformation that is out there?
0: I mean, look, I think both are really important. I think like citizen journalism has tremendous value. There's now billions of people who have cameras and phones and they can be eyewitnesses and they can turn up tremendous evidence. Um, And that's really, really valuable. And we've seen some spectacular news stories in recent years where citizen journalists made profound contributions in terms of demonstrating things that would have been unheard of when I was growing up. I mean, the Rodney King incident happened when I was in high school, I believe. And that was a very lucky opportunity that someone filmed that, probably on a massive heavy camera on their shoulder. And think of all of those similar incidences like that, tragic incidences like that, that were never recorded. So I think that's a great thing. I don't think it's like mutually exclusive with what I do. We do something very different, more traditional journalists like myself. We, do, we have a more rigorous methodology, um, which also has great value and different value. We fact check all stories that we publish. We background check sources. When we learn something, we run it by numerous other experts and sources to triple and quadruple confirm it. It's more of a scientific process in the sense that we're always pressure testing what we learn and we're questioning motives and agendas and scrutinizing sources and constantly filtering and vetting information. So it's a very different method than being an eyewitness and documenting stuff. And sometimes we use that material that citizen journalists capture. And I think all of these contributions are valuable. And I don't really see them as in conflict whatsoever. I think they both have great value.
1: What makes you really good at what you do?
0: Well, I don't know that I'm really good at what I do. Um, I, I think that journalists have like, I think there are a couple things that are prerequisites to be a good journalist. And I still struggle in question if I if I do them enough, but I, I try to focus on them. And one of them is curiosity. I think it's probably the most sacred characteristic that's required to be a good reporter. I think when I say curiosity, I mean it in the deepest sense of the word, like, and to wonder what it's like to be them and what's their perspective. And I'm talking about people you may disagree with, I'm talking about people you may abhor. I remember reporting on the Taliban and calling their spokesman once. And, like, we had a long conversation about what their perspective is on what, why they're bombing girls' schools. And they don't just wake up and decide to bomb girls' schools. They're not like born as evil human beings. Their actions are evil and they're despicable, but they have ancestral grievance, grievances, they have adherence to biblical texts. They have perspectives. We might not like them. We might disagree with them. We might think they're tragic and awful. But I was still curious, like, why do you do this? What motivates you to blow up a girls' school? And I just think, like, that kind of is my fuel for being a reporter and an editor and a manager and a filmmaker is just this, like, endless desire to try to understand people who think differently from me and what makes them tick. And what makes them do the things they do. The other thing that I think makes a journalist good is empathy or compassion, which is very similar to curiosity. But just like, I think, trying to feel and experience what other people are going through and trying to really get a deep understanding of what their pain is like or what their joy is like what harm looks like and being curious about it, but also trying to feel it in a voyeuristic sense, not experience it, but to feel it and to try to understand it. I think these are like really precious skills. And a lot of times when I commission a story or have someone on my team report a story, I try to prioritize in the assignment, curiosity and compassion and empathy in terms of the way we explore the stories.
1: You mentioned that in your reporting, you have spoken to leaders of terrorist groups, such as the Taliban. And I wanted to ask what danger have you been in and what those experiences were like?
0: I have many times in many different ways. I mean, I've interviewed Taliban leaders whose very tribesmen had like months before kidnapped a colleague of mine for many months. I frequented many places that were later bombed and I've seen gunfire and experienced death threats. Um, But I, I kind of believe that fear is like a compass or a guide that can make us better journalists and make us safer. And I think like when you're feeling afraid of, of some something that you perceive to be dangerous, I try to pause and use that feeling to reflect on the decisions that I'm making and to question what I'm doing and not to ignore that fear and not to think that's a weakness, but to think it's actually a symptom that maybe something is wrong. So I use fear as a guide to try to make better, smarter, safer decisions. Um, And I mean, also just as like a funny aside, I think People tend to stereotype, like a foreign correspondent, as living the most dangerous cowboy esque life ever. And the the reality is that the the dangerous moments that I just cited are real, but there are few and far between. And there are so many days that are mind numbingly boring, where you wake up, you make a couple phone calls, you write it eight hundred words, and you send it to New York. And then, if you're not too tired, you go to you go to dinner and you go to bed. So um, it's just worth noting that sometimes even in the most dangerous or exotic places, you're in a compound in a safe place and the days are not as wild and crazy as they may seem in some movies. I mean, it goes without saying
1: that entering those areas, having those conversations is courageous. And I know you mentioned there that you kind of use the fear as your compass but i I still want to push further I guess and ask you specifically how you're able to work up that courage knowing that something bad could potentially happen
0: one thing is that when you go to places that are on the brink of disaster or so-called failed states like it can be really inspiring I mean people often think these trips must be so demoralizing and heartbreaking and I often return sad but also inspired I mean people who are facing desperation and extraordinary circumstances, often sort of reflect the best in humanity in the ways they come together and the ways they survive. So I often find hope and inspiration in like the gloomiest and crummiest of places. I can't tell you how many people have who I've interviewed who've had next to nothing refugees with half a suitcase in a snake pit uh, with three kids and no food, have said things that I found to be inspiring and the way they survived and their outlook has, uh, I mean, not not to glorify their life and their situation at all, but the way people cope and come together can sometimes be quite breathtaking. I also think like, you know, I remember once like feeling really nervous to go and interview someone because I thought there was a risk of the kidnapping. And part of the trick to that is just like telling the local journalists who are from that country and speak the language who we work with, to empower them to make decisions and say, listen, like I'm the dumb American here. You guys are born here. You speak the language, you know, the religion, you know, the culture, you know, the customs. If you feel afraid, you should speak up. Like I will never think it's a bad thing if you tell me we're afraid and never feel that speaking up is going to make me think you're weak and it's never going to make me think you're uh, you'll still get paid either way because some people are afraid that maybe the job will disappear if they back out of an assignment trying to be really sensitive to what their motives may be and in their society, like that might not be a very macho thing. It could be a very weak thing. So I always like to have these really candid conversations before tough assignments that say you speaking up and raising a sign of caution is a great thing. And I welcome that. And I remember pausing in the car on the way to meet some shady characters and saying, Hey, I'm feeling afraid right now. Like, how how much, how, how deeply have you vetted this person we're going to meet? And they're like, well, I think it's safe. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Why do you think it's safe? And they're like, because one of my friends interviewed them a month ago. And I'm like, okay, that's not enough. Like, can you call your friend and ask your friend a little bit more? And we pulled over to the side of the road and had like 20 minutes of phone calls to other people to get a little more background. And then we decided, okay, it's probably safe. And was it a hundred percent safe? No, but we just, you know, I use that moment of fear to do a little bit more homework to try to make the most informed decision possible. And as opposed to just brushing aside that fear and being reckless about the decision or even worse, like ill-informed.
1: Certainly appreciate you sharing all of that. And guess we're going to make a hard right turn here because before we got into a lot of the dangers that you faced, you had mentioned the various types of people with different skill sets that are working for you. And I just wanted to sort of ask you again, to put this in your own words, how would you describe your leadership style?
0: I don't know. I don't know what my style is. I guess, I mean, I try to empower people to do the thing they're good at but I also like aggressively interfere if I think something is going off the track. So um, I think the most important thing that I try to do as a manager is just ask questions. And I love pressure testing my opinions. And I always invite people in my team to push back if they think I'm missing something. And I love to be proven wrong. I think it's so fun and healthy. So I would like to think that we have an environment where The people on my team have a tremendous sense of power and they have the power to sway me and they have the power to legislate why something should be a different way. Ideally, it feels like a democracy, but obviously there are times where I have to make tough decisions based on resources or time constraints or how fast the story is moving in the real world and we just have to get things done. But in general, I think like the overarching theme of our Our team would be that pushback is considered a great thing.
1: We will end with these two questions, the Ring the Bell segment, same two questions in some variety to each guest. My first question, what would you like your legacy to be as a journalist?
0: Well, gosh, that's a pretty heavy question. I I don't really think about that very much. I mean, I guess uh, ideally my pieces will continue to have an impact in the real world that would be great but I don't know I mean I would also be like really happy to be remembered as a guy who makes pretty spicy curry and chili and that would be kind of a heartwarming legacy as well.
1: I think I lied to you because I want to ask one more question about legacy and in terms of how you approach your work Um, when you are going into a project are you thinking or and when you're working on a project are you thinking about how a specific piece will hold up over time whether that's 10 years from now 50 years from now i know you mentioned earlier in the interview about how five years ago producing a piece on the Russian misinformation and really how that has revealed itself to be even more true five years later. So as you're working on a piece, is the legacy of the project ever in the back of your mind?
0: Yeah, I mean, we have a policy at The Times where we cannot take a story down. So every piece we've made is uh, remains in the paper, in the digital archives and online. And that's a lot of pressure. And that pressure, I think makes us better journalists, because we feel that evergreen responsibility. And as I said, like going back and reading old pieces can sometimes make you cringe or make you want to take another swing at something or have some regret. So I, I often think, what are pieces going to look like in a couple years? And is this piece going to age well? And, you know, I think in recent years, you know, the Britney Spears film being one of the more iconic examples, we've seen a societal reflection on things we did 10, 20, 30 years ago that would be unacceptable today, or that simply could have been better, that could have been done at a, at, a, at a more thoughtful or sensitive level. So I think about that a lot. And we, we often have discussions in edit of how this thing's going to age and what it's going to look like down the line. So I think it's a it's a motivator to be better, I think.
1: This is actually my last question for you. What is your why? Or another way to frame this is what is your purpose?
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate your higher level questions here towards the end, but I don't. I don't really think about these things that much. I'm just kind of like centered on what my next piece is going to be. And I, I think the high, it doesn't go much higher than just like, what's the next film we can make or story we can write. That's going to have impact in the real world. But I guess I'm just not at the point in my career yet where I'm thinking about, you know, legacy and, and, and high level purpose. I'm kind of thinking about, what we can do tomorrow that can have value to some community or person or, or society.
1: Well, what you're doing certainly has value and, and impacts our society a great deal. So Adam, appreciate you taking the time and um, look forward to watching your next project. So thanks.
0: Well, thanks for asking me these questions and it's uh, great to think back about those formative years of Friends.